Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 10th. On today's podcast, we offer the latest update on everything surrounding Novak Djokovic. Will he be allowed to enter the country? Won't he be? For now, we have our answer. The answer seems to be yes. Novak winning his appeal in court. He will be, for the moment, allowed into Australia. We've already seen him on the practice court getting his preparations underway. Now, that appeal process can still be challenged once again by the government, and I believe there is a member of the Australian government who can overrule that decision, still elect to cancel Novak Djokovic's visa. We will get into all of that on today's show. And if we're going to continue to talk about this story, we're going to keep turning to the guest who has as many answers, I would argue, as anyone out there. Of course, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. Got to hear the intro for the first time, so at least I could throw something new at him. But of course, you know him best as an editorial producer for Tennis.com, for Tennis Channel, of course, formerly of the WTA, sending Real Housewives gifts your way. It's our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. You have a look of bewilderment on your face, my friend. How are you doing? I was going to ask if this was my, this was in fact my mini break debut. I know the Cracked Rackets empire is so large. I didn't know where this, where these conversations ended up half the time. I'm glad I wore 
my formal t-shirt. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> very happy to be here wherever uh, I am. Yes, I don't think it's your mini break debut. The truth is I'm now comfortable enough with you where I'm just too lazy to record the intro outro afterwards. I forgot to tell you, remember to say that's the break at the end. We'll get there. Just that's the break. Three words. I'll work them in as I get towards the outro because that's what I'll need. <laughs> yeah, David tightens up his tie. That's good. Um, yeah, it's truth is I'm just comfortable with you now and too lazy to record this later because I have stuff to do. And so I got right into it. I, as I did it, I was like, wait, I usually record this after. So I was like, ah, whatever. We'll rock and roll. But of course, it's been a busy weekend for all of us covering the sport of tennis, for all tennis fans listening to this podcast as well. Not only do we have this continuing Novak Djokovic cycle, which I think Tennis Channel even mandates their podcasts lead with here. So we'll get back to that. But of course, we had six events this weekend, ATP Cup. It's always fun watching the Canadians thrive in particular when you've got two young players under the age of 2020 uh, under the age of 22 excuse me in Shapovalov in FAA yielding the title getting wins over their veteran counterparts Pablo Crano Busta Roberto Bautista Agut that felt significant to an extent certainly the quality of tennis was quite high of course Rafa Nadal wins a title over Maxime Cressy who I'm sure you have to have a take or two on of course you also had Gael Monfils extending his 15 plus years of dominance or not dominance but success on the ATP tour he wins another title and you know that's just the men's side on the women's side Barty title town in Australia she got better and better as the week progressed we can talk about that more Simona Halep reminding everyone just how good she is when she plays her best tennis she earns another title this week of course you also it's crazy that this is the third title here but maybe the most significant development Amanda Nisimova back in the winner circle from the first time for the first time since her maiden title in 2019 playing just that outstanding tennis we saw flashes of at the end of last year translates it into a title here this week. Great win over Sasnovich, who was taken young player scalps, uh, scalps on the way to the final. There's so much tennis for us to discuss, so much to discuss, and I want to get to all of that at the end, of course. But we have to start with Novak Djokovic. As always, he hijacks these podcasts, company mandate. I got the order from Sinclair. Uh, you look for Novak Djokovic. For now, for now, it's worth stating, things can still change, but for now, he's in to Australia. He got to practice in uh, Melbourne Park and got to play on the courts and got to, again, be granted at least a temporary visa into the country. Now, there was a whole trial last night. We can get into some of the specifics here as well. Just your first reaction. Where are you with this story, the newest twist in the saga? I mean, I think the delivery of the news is so crucial and how we frame that news is even more crucial if and when perhaps it this story continues to develop. I think is the question, is he in or is he not out? I think that was what um, the question that was being grappled with on behalf of uh, Judge Kelly during yesterday's proceedings. And it appeared to be that his decision largely hinged on the fact that the Australian Border Patrol did not give Novak Djokovic sufficient notice to contest the uh, forthcoming deportation before actually officially giving it. It was. It seemed like a matter of 90 minutes, an hour to 90 minutes, had they taken that time. I don't know if we would have gotten the same exact verdict on behalf of the judge last night. It didn't seem, the question of whether Djokovic's exemption was valid did not appear to be answered. And therefore, 
is left up to the Australian government as to whether they want to continue to pursue canceling his visa a second time. I think the public is certainly absorbed the information in the sense that he's in. I think it was smart. I think Ben Rothenberg mentioned last night that when he was cleared, or at least given this uh, state of execution from the judge that he should rush out to the court as soon as possible, get himself on Rod Labor Arena to show that he's in the draw, in the tournament. Um, and now having that picture up against any potential visa cancellation will certainly make things more uh, complicated for the Australian government. But, but they, nevertheless, they did have Renata Vorachova playing for an entire week before seeking her out and canceling her visa. So uh, it, it does seem to be something that the Australian government is taking very seriously. We're awaiting any further um, updates from them. They were reserving the right to continue pursuing visa cancellation, but did not make any immediate movements. Um, I was a bit surprised, but I think you come down to the details and the, and the facts of the case if he was in fact not given you know, the Australian equivalent of due process, not given enough time to, to seek out counsel and seek out ways to get out of the forthcoming deportation, then he was afforded the right. Um, he was not given fair treatment and therefore um, was granted the stay by the judge. But it's it's it'll be very fascinating to see how this story continues to unfold. You touched on a couple of things I want to follow up on. Let's start with the court procedure of it all. And this comes from Karen Sweeney, the court reporter for the Australian Associated Press. And there have been numerous journalists in Australia. And I think John Wertheim tweeted this out. He's correct. The only winners of this process thus far have been the Australian press who have gotten information out as quickly and accurately as possible to all of us trying to follow this story. So again, I want to give credit to the people who are reporting these details. Uh, Karen Sweeney, Australian Associated Press, to anyone who wants to follow her from this, at Karen L. Sweeney for anyone curious. Um, breaking, Judge Anthony Kelly has ruled that Djokovic be released from immigration detention within 30 minutes. He says the visa cancellation decision will be quashed and the government will have to pay his costs. It's not over yet, though. Christopher Tran, who was the uh, attorney for the state in this instance, says the Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews reserves her personal power to remove Djokovic from Australia. Now, there are a couple of things I want to go into further here. You know, you talk about the procedural issue that allowed Novak Djokovic to win this case. He learned of the notice of his intent of the intention to consider canceling his visa just before 4 a.m. Australia time. Initially, he was given 20 minutes to come up with a reason to be let into the country. There was unreasonableness, his attorneys argued, in that request that was conceded by Chris Tran. Ultimately, the judge seemed to have grappled onto that fact pretty tightly. He talks about again, he was told at 5:20 a.m. that he could have until 8:30 a.m. to respond to the request. At 6.14, he was asked for his response. At 7.29, the decision was made to cancel his visa, and he was told at 7.42. Let me read that again, because I do think that's the critical procedural issue here, and I want to get your comment on that afterwards, David. He was told, meaning Novak Djokovic, at 5.20 a.m. by Australia Border Protection that he could have until 8.30 a.m. to respond to their request that he give their, his reason to be allowed to be let in. At 6.14 a.m., he was asked for comment. Not 8.30. At 6.14, he was asked for his response. At 7.29, again, an hour before 8.30, the decision was made to cancel his visa. He was told at 7.42. Clearly, procedurally, they did get this wrong. And there's a broader conversation here about immigration that, of course, we're not going to have because we're tennis-focused, but this seems to be prominent because it happens to be Novak freaking Djokovic. Always worth keeping that part of the conversation in mind, how frequently this must happen to people who aren't Novak Djokovic. But again, on the technicality, you can see where the error was made. 
Now, that does not get to the broader conversation here entirely, David, but what's your response to that first? Well, first, it certainly tracks because I remember getting notification from the Australian press, who I echo your sentiment, has done a fantastic job and are are seemingly far better equipped to handle this case than a lot of um, even your best tennis journalists. I think we fall into the trap so often with the Twitter mediums who sort of tweet out quotes uncritically often. And I think that has sometimes muddied the waters, especially in this sort of situation where there is so much nuance. It's not necessarily the same as a press conference where you're just getting a player's thoughts on the matter, you know, tweeting out things from the Djokovic family or from different lawyers about whether whether things are being handled appropriately or not. But I certainly remember feeling like we were going to have another hour or so before the decision was made. And I think about seemingly 40 minutes sooner than I anticipated, the announcement was official that his visa had been canceled. So even for my own personal um, recollection, that tracks with the decision, with the idea that he was um, given insufficient notice or, or the notice was sp- sped up as it were. Um, but all in all, yeah, on that, on that technicality, he was let out of this um, visa cancellation. But the question of whether his exemption was legal or correct in the first place does not seem to have been answered. And I think if it had been answered, the government would not be reserving the right to cancel his visa a second time. And maybe they would be looking for Renata Vorachova and the unnamed official who was also deported out of the country for the same reason. So all in all, again, it just seems like a story that has not totally ended yet, but there's been a lot of hours that have passed since this um, supposed and so-called victory of Djokovic. And I think that'll only make things more difficult if the government um, goes back on uh, what has been decided by the judge. Yeah, and again, Samantha Maiden, uh, a pub political editor at news.com.au, uh, tweeted out a response from Immigration Minister Alex Hawk, who confirms he is considering canceling Djokovic's visas process. Uh, again, the statement following today's federal circuit and family court determination on a procedural ground, it remains within Immigration Minister Hawk's discretion to consider canceling Mr. Djokovic's visa under his personal power of cancellation within Section 133C3 of the Migration Act. The minister is currently considering the matter and the process remains ongoing. That's one component to all of this. Now, of course, there's also part two, which is some of the evidence that has leaked out from the court proceedings, from everything that has unfolded, which, of course, is that Novak Djokovic, uh, there's the three categories of people, uh, and I forget because, again, this comes from Karen Sweeney's reporting. I want to get the exact terminologies right, but there were three categories uh, of people when you're – your migration claim is being immigration claim is being considered migration whatever i'm sorry there i'm trying to find the three words here is being considered you have three possible you know there's vaccinated there's unvaccinated and there's one other term there's one other term you fall under i'll look for it as we're going david don't worry um but it's essentially you know what would be the other reason why is there a medical uh, exemption did you recently contract covid whatever it may be We found out in this process that Novak Djokovic did contract COVID. He tested positive on December 16th. Now, that was a PCR test, and he was waiting for the results of the PCR test. When you look publicly, he was photographed at events on December 17th. He was photographed at events on December 18th, public events, shaking hands with people, interacting with people as well. The height of irresponsibility that, you know, something that has been impressed upon all of us over the course of the 18 months. If you're at all uncertain, isolate, quarantine, don't put others at exposure. That is not what he was concerned about. Later on, it turns out he receives a positive test there, or at least that's according to his medical records. He did test positive in that moment. And there's the juxtaposition of those two things is, again, the irresponsibility of Djokovic if he was waiting for 
you know, and concerned about testing positive for COVID, going and performing those public events at the same time, if he had tested positive for COVID, maybe he it does qualify for a medical exemption here to enter the country as well. It's really tough to justify, you know, or to, you know, again, justify those two things. In, in thought, that said, those are the two things you have to balance right here, David, is part A, the height of irresponsibility and just letting it scot-free again after his association with the Adria tour as well. And, you know, a similar sort of event where people were testing positive, still interacting with the public. So this is now a track record for him. At the same time, if he did test positive, the claim to a medical exemption becomes stronger. I think... Um there's still so much speculation and so much of this can be cleared up if and when Djokovic decides to clear this up. But the timeline of this continues to baffle. When we spoke last week, I think I had speculated that it was possible that he had tested positive for COVID between the US Open and Paris, because I couldn't imagine another time when it would have been possible for him to have contracted COVID because I remember covering Djokovic's exploits in December quite extensively because it was the off season and there wasn't a lot to cover and there was Novak Djokovic at a basketball game at a uh, junior tennis tournament uh, helping to donate medical equipment of all things for COVID-19 and also at at L'Equipe photo shoot um, and an interview. I mean, these were a lot of things that he was doing and the timeline of all of it really confounds when you also add the idea that players had a due date of December 10th to even file a medical exemption. So what was going through Djokovic's mind during the month of December? Had he not planned to enter the Australian Open and was then told after testing positive that you can enter the Australian Open because you have this previous infection? Or was he told before the 16th that this was something you'd only be able to get in if you tested positive? And now there's this documentation proving that he tested positive for COVID-19. And then thereafter he was out conceivably and possibly knowing that he had was positive for COVID-19 in, as you discussed, maskless settings, um, really boggles the mind and also puts into question if you're going to let someone in the country, the whole reason why you would not want them in is because you're worried that they might behave irresponsibly or you know spread the virus. And if they're going to behave so irresponsibly as to almost guarantee the spread of virus, that that you know that calls into question character and and how you how you're responding in in a, in a global pandemic if you don't want to be vaccinated or if you can't be vaccinated you would at least expect someone to behave as, as under the impression that they're in a global pandemic and that doesn't seem to be the case and, and there were answers that were not cleared up by the Djokovic family in a press conference given after the uh, order of the judge earlier this morning they were very happy to talk about this idea that Djokovic was treated like a criminal which speaks to the idea that after all this discussion and discourse about criminal justice reform I think we were still not really clear on how criminals are actually treated uh, in comparison to how Djokovic has been treated but when there were questions of whether he knew he was positive on the 16th and was he at an event on the 17th that was when Jordi Djokovic cut the press conference comically short so I think we're still waiting for answers on that as well so it just if you're the Australian government and all of this is out there, I wonder what the incentive is to keep him in the country if now you're going to not only say that you messed up procedurally, but now you're gonna let somebody stay who has proven himself at best to be irresponsible when contracting COVID-19 and not being vaccinated. So just, it's a rough one all around. Just to unpack something you said earlier, why 
do you think him taking a photo on Rod Laver Arena as part of the tournament and, and grading himself there as quickly as possible, why is that valuable to him? Like, I respectfully, I don't understand why the Australian government would look at that as any different. I don't think that strengthened Craig Tiley's argument. And I want to get to the Craig Tiley side of this and the other visas uh. and players rejected as well. Yeah, but that's the noise I would make too. Um, but I'm curious, why is that? Why do you think that's valuable? I think optically, if you're a Djokovic fan or if you're a tennis fan that hasn't been following the situation as closely, you'll then perhaps look at that photo and then hear that he's been potentially uh, deported and feel like, what is the government doing? He was freed. He was allowed on the court. He was he was shown that he did he had this exemption and now you're deporting him. How could you do that? I mean, I think that that's it's to create this um, potentially it creates a, a very pro Djokovic sentiment where you feel like okay he's he's won i mean that's a lot of the headlines that we're seeing is Djokovic wins his appeal and there isn't as much deference to the potential for a, a second visa cancellation like i said there was not a definitive answer as to whether his exemption was valid there was an de- answer given as to whether the procedure that was followed was valid and that's not something that the government um, forfeited in when it comes to potentially trying this case a second time yeah i just you're right. The thing is, I guess, why is that valuable? Perhaps to some people who haven't been following it closely, but all of the invested interests, and in particular the Australian people, the Australian government officials, it doesn't provide a new piece of information to them. Like, I suppose more broadly, I see your point, but to the actual invested interests, I don't think this does anything to strengthen Djokovic's case. Now, I, it, I mean, part of the, you know, I believe last night, police, uh, police used pepper spray right on a group of fans after they blocked the path of a car they thought had Djokovic and fans were banging on windows and throwing bottles jumping on cars a wild response if you feel like your player has maybe gotten away with something wouldn't you want to keep the car free to get away (laughs) like it was such a strange like why would you be jumping on the car it's it's a wild reaction the same sort of political response that you see for sadly too many things throughout the course of various aspects of society right now. And it's this angst of people being locked up. We're really getting deep here, David. People who have been living under restrictions for 18 months and who are now, you know, feeling the mental and physical burden of that, of those restrictions and feeling that weight. And even for those of us who have followed the restrictions and understand why they are in place and, you know, try to abide by them as well, uh, it's still been tough, no doubt, for all of us. Like, we are fortunate. We have this bastion of tennis, David, that we can escape to. And we have each other here on the podcast to connect via Zoom and spend time with one another and love one another. And there are others. Yes, I want back to you as well, my friend. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, sadly, like, that is this sort of Djokovic represents the anarchist element of we're free we're breaking free Djokovic has broken free he's won the argument in fairness of freedom see he if he gets restrictions we should all have these restrictions lifted from us as well and that's what we saw tapped into last night and the frustration behind that is like you want to know what's what's a more powerful photo op that response to this decision or Novak Djokovic you know sitting pretty on a tennis court uh, through all of this like I would argue the former is the stronger of the two elements and so to your point, like, yes, why would you do that? That's so – it's so foolish and stupid and it epitomizes this entire issue, which is just based on a rejection of I'm sorry. Science. You are rejecting the science when you are rejecting get vaccinated. And I saw one pe- person tweet out, is anyone in the media other going ever going to have a take other than, well, he could have avoided all of this by just getting vaccinated. What other take do you want there to be? 
That is the single most educated, single most comprehensive, clear response is to follow the science, to get vaccinated. You are not smarter than the the medical community. I'm sorry. Like I don't – respectfully, Novak Djokovic, you are listening to the fringe elements right now. And that's simply what this comes down to to an extent. And again, he was granted a temporary exemption. Australia can still kick him out. Other countries are seeing all of this. They may just avoid it from the get-go and say, you're not getting an exemption. We're not doing that. You're not coming here, period. And I just, if anything, this entire experience sadly probably hardens the opposite sides of this argument moving forward is that governments won't even consider making exemptions moving forward just given the political and PR mess that this has become. And I like, I think it's important to focus on I, – I don't even know what the point I'm trying to make here is in laying all of those different points out, David. But that is part of the fr- frustration of all of this as well is it's just like I understand – medical freedom fine you don't want to get vaccinated you think that's your personal choice so be it but guess what everyone else is still living by rules you may not think you need to wear a seatbelt. you don't wear a seatbelt. guess what you're going to get ticketed when you are not abiding that rule like if you are this is the equivalent of that only much more serious because it's a global pandemic if you are not getting vaccinated you are not abiding by these countries rules they have a right to kick you out like fundamentally those are what the two things come down to I think there's a rush among fans to really paint um, and even some players to paint Djokovic as a victim in this situation. A political and martyr. And it's ridiculous. When, yeah. Whenever any player experiences something that perhaps is perceived to be unfair, there's there's victim victimhood that is that is ascribed to that player. And I think in this, you have to obviously take those situations case by case. Um, but I don't think you can be a victim if you are a leading influential voice in an anti-science movement. I think just by definition, you kind of seed your victimhood. I think the question does come down to when we're talking about the blame game, and obviously, yes, the, the, the fundamental blame would go on to Djokovic, the architect of his own misfortune in this situation for not getting vaccinated in the first place. However, you do have to look at Tennis Australia and Craig Tiley and how much he was influenced perhaps by encouragements, um, convincing persuasion hey you can come to the australian open if you've contracted COVID in the last six months and i've been arguing for you and i've been fighting for you and this is a situation we run into before with craig tiley over promising players situations that are going to be better than what the government is actually prepared to give them i mean never forget it was last year that he was promising players would be chartered to australia they wouldn't have to quarantine and then 70 odd players were stuck in hard quarantine for two weeks and this is potentially a situation again where Craig Tiley overpromised to Novak Djokovic, who maybe did in his principled stance, intended not to play the Australian Open because he did not want to get vaccinated, didn't want to have to be subject to Australia's rules, and then was told he could come into the country otherwise. But even in that situation, do I feel badly for Djokovic when he's in a hotel with refugees who've been there for nine years? No. I mean, do I feel bad for him because he didn't get his personal chef making him his his special meals? No. I mean, like the the concept of law enforcement like gravely mistreating him as opposed to just, you know, procedurally mistreating him is is really is really the line between those two things has has become quite blurred, especially when you hear um, quotes from uh, Djokovic's father, who every time the mic is in front of him is an opportunity to, to deliver a Shakespearean monologue. It really hmm. is astonishing. I mean, for someone, he's a, quite the orator. I mean, anytime you ask him to describe anything, he will describe it in the most biblical, cataclysmic, 
ancient Rome, Greece of terms. It's, it really is interesting in that sense. But um, yeah, it's I, I, I sense the frustration from Australian citizens who ha have had um, to do the work of getting vaccinated to try to keep COVID out of their shores. I sense the frustration of people now who don't know where this leads next. But I think, again, it, to your point, all of this could have been pre prevented if he had chosen not to get vaccinated. Uh, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> all yeah. of this could have been prevented had he chosen to get vaccinated. Leave that in because that was a beautiful sound effect. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree with you. I would. That's why that's the take to have. I also don't, though, think you can hold multiple thoughts in your head and say this could have been as, you know, a solution would have been to receive the vaccination. The other element, and I'm glad you transitioned there, how much is Craig Tiley at fault? Because the argument that most resonates in, I don't want to say Djokovic victimhood, but if on the side of Novak Djokovic's argument is if he was told you've contracted COVID, you are fine. You'll get in. Don't worry about it. Immunization, whatever. I've I've spoken it out with uh, the Australian government. They've assured me of it. I'm assuring you of that. Submit your papers. Let's rock and roll. And that, that conversation never happened between the Australian government and Craig Tiley. Then Novak Djokovic isn't at fault. And I do think that was Judge Kelly's point is, look, Novak Djokovic, A, was told this is what's being asked if you provide this documentation. He provided this documentation. You are telling him, well, this isn't enough. We need more from you. You're not letting him speak to his representatives to find that more. That's why we're going to allow his visa to stand so he can have some time to clear up that information with all of you. I understand on procedural grounds why, again, that would – why Novak Djokovic – would win his appeal under that standard. That said, to your point, if that standard doesn't meet the burden of proof and that's what Djokovic was told he needs, that's on Craig Tiley. And you're right. It's a repeated pattern here. And look, no one can market like Craig Tiley. No one can sell a bill of goods, false or not false, like Craig Tiley. He was exceptional at selling the goods in college tennis at the University of Illinois. What he did for University of Illinois men's tennis very much ushered in the way so many programs model their programs now. That said, because I don't want, you know, people to think I'm taking a pot I should have known all roads will lead back to college. Oh, they always do, David. They always do. Here, welcome to the mini break, my friend. Um, that said, he is undeniably at fault in this. So much of this confusion just comes down to, well, Craig, what did you tell the players? And then laying out all the documents and laying out the timeline it's suspicious that yeah. he was he was inquiring after whether players could get into the country had they contracted COVID in the last six months in November. And then in December, Djokovic contracts COVID within the last six months. I mean, that doesn't even, why would Craig Tiley even be concerned about that as a potential mitigating factor for Djokovic for a COVID infection that he had yet to contract i think like that's that question also is an interesting one then if if djokovic is then behaving as one who did not receive a positive test in the immediate aftermath you have to then wonder how much scrutiny did he anticipate that that uh documentation would receive i know there was some confusion this morning about the qr code on the document if you scanned it some people were getting a positive test and some people were getting a negative test depending on who got it when it's 2022's answer to the blue dress or black dress uh, or yellow dress <laughs> answer I mean, I, visually, when you look at the green, you would think that maybe that's a good result, but then I'm not in Serbia. I don't, I've never tested for COVID in Serbia, so I don't know what the graphic is supposed to look like just from a first blush. That was my uh, impression of it. But um, 
yeah, I think he's got a lot to answer for, but I think, yeah, as to your point, I mean, I spoke to Daniela Hantakova last year. What is the best part about playing in the, in the Australian Open is that Craig Tiley will do anything for players. That's something that kind of continues to sort of echo in my head. He does everything for players. He bends over backwards for players. He does everything in his power to make things as easy for them as he possibly can. And that's certainly a noble pursuit <laughs> and a noble endeavor, but the consequences of that are starting to become a bit more complicated as the world gets more complicated. It's not just a matter of getting a player over the border. It's a matter of, did he do it the right way? 100%. And it's worth noting, Andy Murray called the Australian Open facilities his favorite facilities of any tournament across the globe. And that is a testament to what Craig Tiley has tried to do for Tennis Australia. And there's plenty of credit he deserves. I think he's received it over the course of the years. This is not one of those instances. This is absolutely, and I don't think it's just Craig Tiley. And again, I tweeted this out earlier, and I love nothing more than quote my own tweets, but it's notable that the ATP and WTA Tour haven't released statements on this yet. It's notable that the player councils haven't released statements on this yet. And yeah, we've heard some players' response when asked about it in press conferences. Some players, the typically active ones on social media have taken the time to chime in and there's a lot of martyrdom you know if your team Djokovic martyrdom you've definitely spoken up about it I I also think to Riley Opelka's point he was didn't make it well but he was trying to make I don't think a player should be ostracized for being comfortable competing with an unvaccinated player and I don't think they should be ostracized for having that thought as well now I don't find anyone who wants to try to educate someone on why vaccination is important I don't knock their efforts either but I don't think that's a ridiculous outlier opinion that said why is this all notable because again where's the leadership like where's the say here's how we're not going to how, to ensure this doesn't happen moving forward both from the player councils both from the tours as well and i know again it's a government issue it's a government of australia issue but you are the governing body of tennis and tennis is being made a look to make a fool right now and you have no response to it in the moment you're just going to let it play out someone i think it was jeff sacklin was like well you know the atp is busy being quiet about other issues and that's fair and that's clearly their policy is don't say nothing let it blow by but to what extent is that just unacceptable yeah it puts them it puts you know governing bodies in a bind because what are they what are they advocating for in this situation they ad, i mean after spending months advocating for players to be vaccinated on mass do you then look at Djokovic and say he reserves the right to not be vaccinated. It kind of goes against what they've been ostensibly been pressuring their own players to do. Do they then take a harder swing that, you know, what are they supposed to say? That this is his own fault because he's unvaccinated? I mean, obviously, naturally, the PTPA, which has no conflicting interest in this situation, released their statement about whether they feel Djokovic should be vaccinated or not. And goes back to our point that we said last week about the PTPA, about how, um, you know, wh- wh- how many of the things that they're fighting for will happen happen to coincide with the, yeah. the best interest of the players running the PTPA. But um, yeah, it, it's it, it's, a, it's a tricky one, especially because, you know, the, the governing bodies can say that we reserve the right to comments until the withhold comment until um, this situation plays out. And I think the fact that there hasn't been an immediate response maybe gives you some indication of whether the governing bodies think that the story has not finished yet. Still, you're the leaders. Like, it's your organization. I just think, if anything, Yusa says, this is why we've been promoting vaccination. This is why, come February 15th, we are instituting a vaccine mandate in our tour Mm -hmm. events to ensure that this doesn't happen moving forward. Or say, this is not why we have not, you know, this is why we've been encouraging it. That said, we... 
blah, 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 blah. The point is this is what a communications department is built to do, and there are a lot of smart people in the WTA and ATP communications department. And this is not meant to ostracize any of them, but it's just – it's indicative of a reactive leadership. It's a reactivity, not proactivity that too often I think, again, it's just detrimental to the broader cause of tennis. I know in Italy there has been an effort uh, to make uh, things more complicated for and make things more difficult for unvaccinated players. I know John Wertheim tweeted out um, a copy of a release that if you plan to compete in Italy, know that if you are unvaccinated, you won't be able to use, I think, really any of the facilities, even if you have, I think, even if you have an exemption. I think that's probably where things are going. I mean, I think to the point about Renata Voracheva, I mean, I think we're still in that potential grace period where the vaccine could be out and you could have conceivably caught COVID in six months. And is that, is that if you have really caught COVID in six months, is that um, sufficient immunization against the virus? Um, so I, I would hope that that's something, I mean, I, th I think that's a situation where you really do just have to bring the hammer down and say, this is, we, this is our tour. All of our players are expected to conform in this particular instance, 95% of the players have done it already. Um, so it's not like it's we're talking about a wave of players who would suddenly be absent from tournaments. I mean, I don't think that that um, most events are really, you know, wringing their hands over the potential of not seeing Tennis Sandgren in their draw. But I think they would be nervous to see uh, Djokovic potentially sitting out this thing. And this is this goes back to the idea of Djokovic being a leading voice for anti-science is that if your world number one has this wacky view and do you then bench him and not let him participate in tournaments? I mean, I mean. He has someone. He is someone who has proven or shown that he can bend his principles. I mean, this is someone who famously thought he could will his ankle, his elbow injury better, and then eventually got surgery. So it's not like he, necessarily that once he makes a, a decision that he will never go back on it. I mean, I think granted in this situation, it makes it all the tougher to after all of this to suddenly say, well, I'm going to get vaccinated. But I do wonder where the ATP goes from here in terms of um, a vaccine mandate within their tour. Um, because so many are already vaccinated, it's not like it's something that would affect that many players, but it, it would affect one. And so that's, um, that's I think that's probably why their hands really feel tied at this point. Yeah. And again, there is still the chance that Australia can reject his visa and kick him out of the country. So while this saga for now has taken a turn towards Djokovic, there is still the chance, David, we're going to call you back on here for a part four to say, just kidding again, Novak's out. Uh, because again, there's that sort of, I mean, this has all the attention. And again, credit to Australian media. They've been killing it on the reporting side of this issue. Clearly, it's caught Fantastic. the And it's clearly captured the attention of the Australian people as well. I mean, the fact that I'm getting calls to do TV hits, that's how deep they're going into the bench right now. They're like, everyone else has been taken. So we'll go to that Alex Gruskin. Uh, what, Benny went on CNN, someone was saying the other night? That's clear, you know— Hey, that should never happen. But I think they thought the red of the Chiron matched the red of his hair, and so they're like, "This is a good fashion fit." Yeah, David, you've got the you've got the the locks for CNN as well. Um, you know, I keep the orange logo on the hat just in case. But no, it's this is a story that's. It's, and again, it's always so sad that whenever tennis transcends international news, it's not because something happened on the court so frequently. It's something happening related to tennis off of it. As always, we will continue to say. The Djokovic parents have had a free press conference before Peng Shui was able to have a free press conference. We would like Western <laughs> media to have the opportunity to speak with her at some point as well because, boy, would that be delightful um, for all of us just to see her, you know, again, safe, healthy, hopefully. Um, but 
it's this issue it's not going anywhere until the tournament begins play if he's in the draw we'll know if he's not we won't if anyone uh, just from the tennis side can prepare in one week it's Novak Djokovic so I'm, I don't think four days is going to ruin his preparation certainly not going to help but I think he'll be prepared and that's what week one of a grand slams for for him that said David any final thoughts on all of this well, I mean, part of me is morbidly fascinated to see what would happen if Djokovic comes to court for a first round match. I mean, I do wonder. I mean, the Australians are not necessarily shrinking violets. So let's in do that situations. real quick. What's the yeah. reaction from from the crowd? I mean, I'm listening to Paul Sackle talk to Ben Rothenberg on No Challengers Romania. I mean, he did introduce the possibility that, you know, someone could throw something at Djokovic on the court, that there could be, you know, an attempt to um, protest his press conference to, you know, for this, for the same way that you could see happy people jumping on top of a car for Djokovic, you could maybe see the opposite for, you know, people who are unhappy that he's here. I mean, I think it's a little different. It's not the same thing to compare Djokovic's mental fortitude on center court against a pro Federer crowd as it may be to see him potentially on Rod Laver Arena against a very angry anti-Djokovic crowd. I mean, I think we we sometimes conflate pro-Federer with anti-Djokovic or pro-Nadal with anti-Djokovic. Um, but I think that that would be a totally different situation. And I think that where there was uh, speculation as to whether people would show up in mass for that first round match, I do think after all of this, if he does play, I think that that crowd will be very full it'll be interesting to see where he is scheduled on the tournament um order of play if it, if he does end up on the draw would they put him first in the, in the efforts of maybe trying to you know kind of just get him in the draw and get him through without having to make a big shamil out of it i, I doubt very much that they'll put him first you know on when was on the last time the novak Djokovic led a session at a tournament oh my god it's got to be what 2006 i mean first up on rod laver that, that's conceivably right i don't mean i'm not i feel like he's the night match always because especially in australia djokovic has a connection with that crowd in the past he is sold there extraordinarily well obviously it's the grand slam he's accomplished the most ad he's always been good at being the villain even though i think he hates it more than anything else and i think that is subtly you know what is the drive and the passion is he just wants to be adored like there's no doubt when you watch novak djokovic you see a guy dating back to his impressions of players you know at the start of his career to where he's at now he wants to be adored and this is much you know as you to your point a pro federer a pro nadal crowd is not anti-novak this may be an anti-Novak crowd, and that is, I, it is. I mean, if anything can motivate you, it's that. And I, I think I do. You know, wonder. You know, on the court again, if he is allowed to play, you you always think, well, at this point, what motivation does he have left? Like, we will see a motivated Novak. There is no doubt about that. I mean, spite is a powerful motivator, but I mean, I wonder. <laughs> You know, with the days off, with his, you know, his notoriously um, precise rhythm, you know, very much shaken. And I don't see it necessarily getting that much better in the next week and a half because he'll still be around and there'll still be a lot of media attention wherever he does end up. I, I think that there is a lot left unsaid with this story. And yeah, I, I, some, I highly doubt he will be getting a night session for his baby, at least his first few rounds, because I don't think you'd want to risk the crowd <laughs> really uh, turning on him in, a, in an ugly way and then potentially making him even more um, of a victim in this situation. I think that's, you know, that's, that's a tough one too, because then there will start to maybe be a wave of, uh, of sympathy towards, uh, towards him. And, and, and if he is, you know, really treated poorly, poorly, but uh, um, 
again, it's it feels it feels far off to even prognosticate him in the draw because we still don't you know tomorrow is another day in Australia, so I, I don't know what what will become of this uh, this story as it continues to unfold. Well, actually, today is another day in Australia. You gotta love time zones, Your there, point. David. But uh, yeah, all right. With all of that said, again. Hopefully we get. I mean, I'm going to ask you to come back. I was saving this for after the pod, but since I'm just doing all of these firsts here, you want to come on later this week and do some sort of Australian Open preview? Because by the way, it starts next week. Like, there's a crazy thought for everyone: is that the Australian freaking Open will be being played next week? Yeah, I'm thinking like Wednesday, Thursday. Well, I'll, I'll text you after this. You know, we'll work. I still feel like I'm in the off season, but yeah, yeah. for you, Alex, anything. Oh, that's very kind. Well, no chaser here. We get right to it. Um, with that said, let's talk some tennis here. And I don't want to keep you for too long, but 15, 20 minutes on the tennis real quick. Let's start you. on the women's side. Ashley Barty. I did not think she looked good early in the week, but then I thought slowly got better against Kennan, played exceptional against Iga Swiatek in the semifinals was moving. It was a vintage Barty physical performance, her ability to precisely hit that forehand in so many different directions, her ability to use the slice to get the ball out of Swiatek's strike zone. She got so much better throughout the course of the week. That said, I still think Osaka's best looked best of anything I saw, but I thought Barty got a lot better Simone is healthy again, and when she's healthy on a hard court, two out of three sets, she is always going to be such a tough out. But to me, and I said this at the top, the place I think we have to start, and we saw it in the Pliskova match, 7-6, 6-7, 7-6 at the U.S. Open last year. But Amanda Nisimova's back, David. And I mean, 13-6 and six since the start, since San Jose last year. I think five of those six losses have been to top 20 players, a couple of them in three sets as well. She's beating who she's supposed to beat. She's She looks better as a mover. Still, you know, if you can get her stretched in the outer thirds, and that's what Sasnovich did really well in the final, kind of exposed that lack of elite movement. But when she has time in the center of the court to strike the ball cleanly, she belongs in Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club. Like, there's just a gear Amanda Nisimova can get to that most players can't. And to me, you know, let's keep in mind, still 20 years old, David. She, you know, she, so many tough breaks for her over the past 18 months. I 2022, if this is the start, has all the makings of bounce back season for Amanda Nisimova. Yeah, nothing but respect for my 20, 2019 French Open champion, <laughs> if, you, if you remember that semifinal. Yeah. But um, but going back to Anissimova, going back to the U.S. Open uh, this past summer, I mean, watching her play Karolina Pliskova, I was fairly invested in Pliskova going deep in that tournament. I had just done a pretty deep dive with uh, the Czech ahead of the tournament, but I was watching that second round against Anissimova just laughing just because the way that Anissimova was playing, the winners she was pulling off, I was thinking, you know, if Amanda wins this, too good. There was not much more Carolina could have done in that tiebreaker had she not um, been able to turn it around because Amanda was playing that good. That backhand is just textbook. I mean, you, you compare the power of Anisimova to the power of uh, Sabalenka. I think Sabalenka's probably got more power, but I think um, Anisimova makes up with it with just some pristine, pristine technique off mm-hmm. all wings, off all sides, uh, partnering up with Darren Cahill this week, which, you know, the the angels uh, trumpeting, you know, the, the clouds opening for, for news like that. You You'd love to see um, Cahill back in the coaching box working with a player as young and talented as Anisimova. Really a fantastic development. I certainly hope that partnership continues. It's already paid dividends. It's her first title since the spring of 2019. If you can imagine 
what 20 year old has gone through more since winning her first title than an Amanda Anisimova making that French Open final, dealing with the death of her father, the global pandemic, injuries. There's just been so much that she has been through in, in, in just two very, you know, two to three very short years at this point. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's been a rough one for her, but if she's playing well, she made the fourth round of the Australian open in 2019, beating Sabalenka there. Um, certainly going to be a tough out for, for anyone who may get her in the early stages. Same goes for Simona, who will, I think be a fourth round, um, pick for one of those top four seeds could be, you know, a, a Barty Simona, fourth round. Now Simona's come out on the wrong end of those um, fourth round, you know, second week matches a couple of times at the Australian Open last few years against um, Serena, um, both times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Both times. So yeah, that's, um, that's be an interesting one for her to conquer that demon. But I think, you know, Simona is dedicated. She wants to keep playing. She is motivated and is, as you said, healthy. I think, you know, the sky's the limit for her, the way she was able to dig out of that match against Galubich after really not looking good on serve for a good stretch of that match was able to turn it around from four, three, um, four, three down and, and break and, and win that match six, four in the third, and then go on to win the title against Kuder Medova. Just really some phenomenal stuff from Simona. Um, and then going back to Barty, just, yeah, I mean, she is. Well, the quickly, best. let me stop yeah. you on Simona and, and it, so just a couple of things to follow up on a Anisimova technique backhand side. I agree. It is so smooth. Now That's the fun. forehand gets a little big and I think she can be pressed by pace. I also still, like, it is worth mentioning, she's not a good mover. Like, I mean, it's not horrible, and she makes up for it with some length, and she, you know, again, anticipates well, but it's not the most explosive first step. And I don't think, you know, fundamentally, with someone who's as powerful as she is, I think the movement will continue to get better. And that's the scary part, is it does feel like she can continue to get better as an athlete, and she's not bad when she's on the move. Again, very capable of hitting that ball big if she's able to get her racket on it from wherever. I think the slice looks better. She's not uncomfortable moving forward and hitting overheads out of the air, which is such a valuable skill. Um, But yeah, I mean, the power time, like when she's on her front foot, she can hang with anyone. And it was fascinating because Sastovich had her 3-0 down in the third. And like, you know, Onisimova connected on a couple of return winners and all of a sudden the gear was flipped. And Amanda Nisimova does have that gear where, you know, and that's where you worry about a Simona Halep to tie this in is Halep did not serve well all week. That would be my reservations about her. She moved extraordinarily well. And I would say right now she is moving better. And I mean, it's one week, but she's moving as well as I've seen anyone move thus far. Even Barty, who that was the real thing for Barty in her first match against Coco Goff. She just she did not move well out of corners. She moved so much more fluidly, especially against Iga. She was everywhere in the outer thirds of the court, neutralizing that ball and, you know, getting to take that ball early, beating you to the spot against Rabakina. Halep moved extraordinarily well, but she had to move extraordinarily well because it felt like every player she faced on her run, even Kudermatova in the end, uh, was able to hit some, you know, hit aggressive returns and get that ball into her body. And so I agree with you, like, of course, Simona. One of my favorite match. I think the match that clinched it, the the Halep Wozniacki match, Australian Open final twenty seventeen, I believe, is one of my favorite of all time. Like t- to this day, remains will be a match I will go back to and watch highlights of on the old YouTube. Um, but I also like. I it's fascinating to think. You know, Simona Halep wins that she's one slam away, right, from the golden slam uh, from the career slam. Like she would be a U.S. Open away. And I don't think that – I think that would be 
Of all the accomplishments that to me would make the most sense for Simona Halep throughout her career, her winning the career slam, a testament to, you know, she's been really good at all parts of the season throughout the course of her career. That would make a ton of sense to me. Like I, that's a narrative arc that I think would fit her career. And I do feel like this is the tail end of that window, but that window is still slightly open. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, talk about Simona. I mean, the way that she has, um, the career arc that she has had yeah. over the last two years. I mean, you, you think of where she was right before the lockdown. She had just won her, her 20th title in Dubai, playing some really good tennis, you know, had shaken off the Australian Open loss to Serena, was playing well, locks down, was a match away, you know, or a few matches away from, from being number one at the end of 2020 in spite of that. You know, you think of all the cases of COVID now, if, if Simona had played the U.S. Open in the summer of 2020, how different would that tournament have looked had she not um, withdrawn from the events? You know, and then at the time, there was barely any cases of COVID in New York City. Um, but, you know, again, a phenomenal mover and, and, and attributes, I would attribute a lot of that to the work that she's done with Darren Cahill, which tying it back to Anissimova, that's a great partnership because, I mean, I think Cahill really turned Simona into an athletic machine um, through their tenure. And if, if that's something that he's going to work with Amanda on, all power to him because I think that would make Amanda a very dangerous uh, opponent. But yeah, I think with Simona, she's got the French Open and Wimbledon out of the way. I mean, the same thing for Barty. I mean, like that, that just leaves the the hard court slams. And, you know, you feel like if you've gotten the specialty surfaces under your belt, you know, 90% of the season's hard court anyway. And they, they, these players know how to play on that surface. And Simona is a former finalist in Australia. So I would certainly give her the edge um, to still potentially win that title and won't have the same, you know, home court pressure that Barty would have. Um, if, if you're asking me which of them I thought would win the Australian Open first, and then, you know, then it comes down to the U.S. Open. Can Simona conquer New York? Um, and that's something that I still wait to see because I feel like, you know, as, as, a, as a New York lover myself, I feel like it's not that bad, Simona. Come on. Yeah. Come to a museum. Yeah. No, it's a show. It's all fascinating. You bring up the Barty component. Look, she's won title number one in Australia of the season off that back. So it's like, well, I've done it already this year and obviously it wasn't the Australian Open, but – it was not a, you know, it was a murderer's row. Golf first round. Shvian, uh, Kennan second round. I thought Kennan looked pretty good. She's hitting the ball huge. And I also don't think she's moving as well as she will when she's fully reacclimated to tour life. But that was a good win for Barty. And then she played so well against a very informed Iga Sviantek. If I'm making the list, Osaka one, Barty two. Sviantek three might be who was most impressive to me this week. That's how big and cleanly yeah. Iga was hitting the ball. That first, The first four games of the first set took 38 minutes. Like, it was an absolute grind. That Barty, again, physically got better and better. Ashley Barty is so good. Like, I know she's not exceptional at anyone. You know, it's not blow you away with any one thing that she does, although her ability to hit the plus one ball, get in behind it, so efficient. Somehow that backhand slice always just deep enough to prevent an easy approach shot from her opponent. I think there's a lot of things she does exceptionally well, even if they aren't the flashiest. She's so good. She's just so good. Like, again, you think, oh, I'll attack the Barty backhand with power. And like, okay, Iga tried it, took her six times inside-out forehands or cross-court for, uh, for backhands to even get that ball deep enough into the Barty backhand to do damage. And even when you do, you give Barty an on-the-run forehand, which she's so lethal with. And it's like, Kennan tried it. It worked at times, but it didn't work entirely. Sviantek tried it. It worked at times, but it didn't work entirely. Rabakina tried it. And again, in all three instances, Barty won out physically. I mean, I think Osaka's my favorite entering the Australian Open, despite her withdrawing with the injury. 
But it's she's 1A, Barty's 1B. Like, I feel exactly the same. Despite New York going as chaotically as it did, I still feel pretty similar about those two things heading into this event. Cool. Um, I think Barty <laughs> That was has... a lot to throw at you. <laughs> no, I just, just taking it all in. I think Barty yeah. has two really good things going for her. One is the fact that she has proven herself to be very mentally tough and gets mm-hmm. up, particularly against the best players, because mm-hmm. I think that needs to be as much as I saw the... Um, that impressive record against top 20 players. You have to then also remember the three of her Grand Slam losses last year were to players outside the top 20. So, I mean, like, you look at that record and you think, oh, you know, she's unbeatable. And then, yes, against when she does get the best players and the current best players, yes, she is quite nails. And I think you get more of them, you get more opportunities against them earlier at the bigger, at the smaller tournaments. You're not getting them necessarily right off the bat at the slams. And that's when it's been a bit tricky for Barty to play her way into form. And we've only seen her do it twice um she did it at wimbledon and had some really tricky opening rounds was able to get into gear and then by the time she got to the end against kerber and Pushkova, she was really unbeatable but um it's for her the grand slam still seems to be a bit of a different animal than mm-hmm. the the tour events you know i think the tour events like you said you get you know you get a, a a coco golf who's still a bit streaky at that point in the tournament and then you get you know an the Iga Svantec is a similar I feel similarly about Shantek that I feel about Barty, which is that they're both such supremely different looks as an opponent. Not everyone plays like Barty. Not everyone plays like Shantek. I would argue that they are quite singular in their approach. And that gives, um, I think that gives the top players as they exist right now, some fits, you know, they're just such a unique ball coming at them at, across the net that it's not the same thing that they're quite as prepared for. You know, you're prepared for a Rebakina. You're prepared for even a Simona Halep. You know, I think the way that, Barty comes across her forehand or the way that Shanta comes across her forehand. It's just so different. And I think Iga and Ash are still so new that you really haven't gotten the same kind of exposure to them that the top players have gotten to one another um, in that sense. I mean, people know, and again, even with Osaka, people know what to expect from an Osaka ball. And I think that's the one to your point as well, that I would be looking at to potentially shake up the Shantex and the Barty's because she has the consistent power, the consistent athleticism to really, hit through the nonsense for lack of a better word. I mean, like, you know, if you're rebocking it, you're still not great at, you know, as a mover, you're still a bit streaky. You know, she celebrated that one point that she won and then like, didn't win another game. until like three Oh in the third in the second set rather. So it's, you know, it's, it's so a rough one. Yeah? I do though, just on the Rabakina thought she's not there yet. And I know it was only a set in two games, but boy, she's like a year away because I'm, I don't think she's not capable. So I think Anissa Mova, We'll never. I think Elena Rabakina's. Let me let me do the the the, the positive. I heard spin, never. <laughs> I think Elena Rabakina is a better mover than Amanda Nisimova. I think there's a fluidity to Rabakina's movement. It may not be elite right now, but she has the first step and she has the length. It's about being able to reproduce that to put yourself in the best position from a movement standpoint more frequently. She has a combination of first step and length that I think Anisimova lacks. And there were shades in that first set, in particular the first eight games, where you watched Elena Rabakina track down that on-the-run cross-court forehand from Barty to the open space and then go even bigger down the line or track down the backhand slice, get low for it, push it and guide it down the line with power. She did it extraordinarily well at times. I thought Iga did it extraordinarily well again, particularly in those first four games. Now, Barty's physicality won out for now, and it's worth noting, Barty, 25, 26 years old, whatever it may be, a little bit older than those two, but give those two a year, 
you know, two years to mature even further physically. They both have the goods to be right there. Like that to me was why I'm so encouraged by them in the losses. But you're right. That also is what makes Barty so exceptional. It's very Nadal-ish in that if you don't have the physicality to hang with Barty, she'll expose you right away. And Rabakina is my pick to make the top 10 or make her top 10 debut in 2022. As as I cited in the latest edition of Tennis Magazine on newsstands now. But um, yeah, I didn't didn't mean to denigrate the Rabakina movement. I just felt like, you know. No, you're right though, because it's not there yet, but it could, that's the low hanging fruit. It reminds me of young Tsitsipas where you're like, when he was 19, 20, 21, it wasn't quite there. But once the muscles matured, okay, it's there. Now I'm just imagining Tsitsipas like, giving his inspirational quotes to Rebakina and just sort of getting like that blank <laughs> expression. Coffee return, like, is the fuel of the adult. And it was like, or what did he say? It was something, cell phones are the cancer cells of society. I mean, just just Google it. I'm sure it's there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm I'm sure it's there on, 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 on an image macro. Should we do a segment, Pass quote or something I made up? You know what? I'm putting that segment in the queue for the next time you're here. Tsitsipas segments that are made up. But no, I mean, I, Incorrect Tsitsipas quotes. Like there was a great Tumblr in the early 2010s. Yeah, incorrect Sylvia Plath. Exactly. Tsitsipas or Gruskin. Um, all right. With that in mind, any other WTA thoughts? Are you ready to move on to the men? Um, no, yeah. My big t- my big takeaway is Halla because I was really, when she was you know down against Galovich, I really didn't think that was going to pan out for her. But the fact that she was able to turn around and then play as well as she did, did against Kudermetova in the final – Good on you, Simo. But yeah, and also great to hear that um, Amanda's working with Darren, and I hope that fingers crossed that that lasts. Vikalianseva, did I say it right? Vikalianseva. Vikalianseva. God, it's like, a, it's like it's like a cur, it's like a COVID curve. It goes up, it goes down. It's a parabola. I see. Uh, <laughs> Vikalianseva. Okay, um, I'll work on that. Sorry. All right. With that in mind, let's quickly rapid fire through the men. Nadal, the hairline is diminished. The game is not. He Ooh. looks oh from one to another. I call shade. Yeah, please. I real recognize is real. Um, I mean, it was an ideal draw. I thought Emil Rusevori. I'm gonna do a segment on this Han Solo because I. I mean, unless you want to give me your Emil Rusevori takes, I'm sure you've got them. Um, but saving those for Patreon. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Rusevori looks great. Cressy is Cressy. In the end, Nadal gets the victory. He was looking for matches. He got him. I think the ball hung a little bit short in the court, but I thought he moved pretty well. I mean, his willingness to move forward is what's allowed. This is Nadal 3.0, right? It's what allows Nadal to sustain this prime a little bit longer, just his core positioning exceptional. Your takeaway, what event was that? Melbourne 1? Mel, whatever, or whatever. That might have been the Melbourne 1. That, no, that was Melbourne. Women were Melbourne 1, Melbourne 2. Give me the Nadal, Melbourne, or Adelaide take. Guy, when I tell you that broke my brain this morning, trying to figure out whether Innocimova won Melbourne one or Melbourne two or the Gippsland Trophy, <laughs> which I think two. they're still calling it. Like, no, it's oh. Melbourne two. It's Melbourne yes, two for Innocimova. Yeah, that, that one I just double NS app. No, which you is know how they did it. Me, by the way, <laughs> I'm so rude, bro. I was like, all right, like Halep's good, Anisimova not as good, Melbourne one, Melbourne two. <laughs> like that's how I remembered it. And then Adelaide, I was like, kind of like, we were all kind of melting together. But yeah, it's no, I mean, it's great to see Nadal after as as rough as he looked in DC. I mean, you know, we've seen this time and again with the men, you know, if they take this, that time off and shut down their seasons. I mean, I think Federer is really the, this most recent Federer comeback is really the first example of one of the top men taking that time off and it not immediately yielding like some impressive result that we saw in 2017, the, the rash of men, you know, taking time off or 2016, even with Federer. 
um, and then coming back just better than ever. I mean, I think, it, uh, you know, a rest is phenomenal, especially for a player like um, Nadal, who, who you have to think the air was really out of his season when he did not end up uh, winning another Roland Garros title. He probably just decided to pack it in. And um, as I said last week, I mean, it's, it's a shocker that he does not have more Australian Open titles. I mean, he's someone who, you know, conceivably would only get more injured as the season goes on based on how physical his game is you would think when he comes in fresh and ready to go that he would be ready to to uh to pull off an australian up one has had some rough some rough goes of it some rough matches against uh djokovic and Bobrinka in the past but yeah i think um if he's if he's feeling good and he's feeling healthy you know I, he he's very much in it for 21 you know it's it's not just a one in a one-man race for this, this 21st grand slam anymore which i think is 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 heartening because you know to see it's great to see a march towards history but you also want to see the other two players who were there with you kind of at least still somewhat competing for it and you know if you want to if you want to look at it uh legitimately or yeah. um more con- what's the word not yes. legitimately because i don't want to sound like it's like illegitimate that he did that if Djokovic wins 21 while the other two are not really in contention for it but you know it just gives it more gravitas that's yeah the there it is that's the word yeah i was gonna yeah gravitas is fine i understood what you were saying i think others do as well i mean I don't know if he's looked good. I mean, when I look at him compared to, you know, some of the guys at ATP Cup, like I thought Felix looked great. I thought Chapo against Carino Busta. If that's the Chapo we're going to get in the Australian Open, look out rest of the draw. I thought Medvedev worked his way into form. I don't think Berrettini looked particularly good, but man, is Yannick Sinner ready to take another step forward here in 2022? And just, again, Carino Busta looked great. You know, Bautista Gut is fit as he'll be at any point of the season. You have a bunch of players playing extraordinarily well right now. You probably add Gael Monfils to that list following his win where he just out-muscled Hachinov. And, you know, he made that match against Tanasi Kokonakis, who had already played two three-setters the two rounds before, so physical and just that he can still bring that element of physicality. Again, if I took a straw poll in 2009, which of the Frenchmen retires first? Monfils, Sanga, Simone, or Gasquet? I think Monfils would have been the unanimous answer, like across fans, across tennis media, maybe Sanga due to some of the injuries he's had, but like instead it's Gael Monfils who's healthy, who's fit, who's ready to play into these 2020s, David. And so, you know, with all of that said, I opened up the ATP Cup there. We've talked about it before. I thought it was a really fun event. That doesn't mean I don't want Hopman Cup back. That doesn't mean I think the players in the event should be rewarded points. I just thought it was a very fun event. You know, outside of that, I think anytime you play in a team format, it brings out an extra element, and I think it makes an event that much more fun here in professional tennis. Final thoughts on the ATP side. I know I touched on a lot there. I mean, my main exposure to Felix at the ATP Cup was the match against Medvedev, which was mm-hmm. not great. But to your point, Medvedev really did play his way into form. And shout out to uh, Roman Safulin, who really played yes. a phenomenal week in, in, in the kind of ways that make you think that we could have a potential another Karatsev uh, on our hands uh, coming into this Australian swing. A really great you know, coming out moment for him. But again, yeah, the, the Canadians really held it down uh, when it counted, you know, fantastic for them again you know it's because it's such an interesting format because it's 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 still it's still something that players are getting used to i wonder the degree of seriousness that's applied to it i mean i think the fact that maybe there's a different winner this year may actually help you know keep the competition up that it's not just one team you know steamrolling to it but it felt weird to see russia not in the final after as well as they played you know to to get to that deciding doubles in the semis but um yeah it's uh I think, yeah, going into the Australian Open, I, I still I still like Medvedev. I still think that he's playing really well. I still think that he is 
the one who has the most to grow, you know, because he's had this, you know, indomitable record on hard courts, doesn't have the pressure of going after his first Grand Slam title, and doesn't seem to be in the post first slam slump that we've seen so many players deal with. And so I think that all of those things um, potentially make things uh, quite positive for him going into the first slam of the year. And we still don't know who's really going to be there in terms of chief rivals. Yeah, I think that's completely fair to say. And that's, again, what's going to make this Australian Open so enjoyable. It's just how open it feels. And it sucks that we're getting distracted by off-court things because, again, the on-court product, in my opinion, has never been better. It's never been more intriguing with all that said, I'm anticipating we'll bring you on for part four later this week. If not, we will do certainly some Australian Open uh, preview content there as well. Give me the rundown, though. What you working on? Where can we read it all? Still working at tennis.com. <laughs> Still, probably hoping to reach out to Sifulin because he and Anastasia Potapova have the same agent. I like it. Uh, Let me also just say I I got angry because the real ones, the Colette Lewis readers know, it was Roman and not Medvedev, Hatchinov, Rublev eventually, who was the stud when they were younger, was the first Russian standout, and then just was injured a bunch. And so I'm that I would I'm ready to read this piece, David. I'm excited. 2015 Junior Australian Open champion, I believe. I mean, this is we got we've got some heritage there. But uh, this is right yeah. in my strike zone too when I'm at my most fandomness. And so like I get so angry when I'm, people are like Hatchinov. I'm like, it's not Hatch. All right, it was him first. Okay. I was very close to putting Sifulin in my power rankings, but I wanted to just do the top 100 at the end of the season. And I thought, oh, he's so close. But you know, now won't be an issue at this time next year by uh, by all account, by all measures. But yeah, you can all find it at tennis.com, Tennis Magazine. I did a whole 2022 feature uh, series, you know, previewing the best of the best, what's going to happen in 2022, doing making my boldest and wildest predictions, all of which is also now available on web, but would appreciate if you pick up the print version because you can see all the pretty colors and all the pictures. Um, but all of that can be found online, tennis.com, and I promote all my stuff on Twitter and Instagram, DKTNNS. That's S. No affiliation with the TNNS app, unfortunately. I'm still waiting on my royalty check. Yeah, seriously, TNNS app. Let's get David a royalty check. I just want to see your face whenever I click on it, although... You know, again, I was supposed to say, well, I always click on Tennis One, but the truth is I click on both because I like to use everything at my disposal. (laughs) With all that said, a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. All the best equipment, all of the best prices. You'll let them know you sent us there if you use that promo code as well. 15% off free. Uh, uh, Two-day shipping on all orders, $16.75. Best of all, free can of Wilson Extra Dude Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. A shout out as always. To our super producer, Danny Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. With all of that said, let's see if you remember those words, David. I think you do. For my fantastic co host, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. That was perfect, my friend. Thank you as always. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 